This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. The healing power of gardens and nature is well known to almost anyone who gardens and has been recorded by gardeners, landscape designers, and medical practitioners as far back as antiquity. But it's an element of cultural awareness and health care that seems to come and go with time, with economic health, and with cultural values. Today we're joined by a leader in the field of evidence-based research, education, and design of what are alternately known as healing gardens or therapeutic landscapes. Claire Cooper Marcus is a retired professor in architecture and landscape architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. Claire joins us today via Skype from her home and garden in Berkeley. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. I always like to start with where you started and some of the earliest experiences in your life that led you to becoming a plant or nature-loving person and led you ultimately to your focus on the power of these things in our lives, Claire. Well, as I think in perhaps many people's lives who become avid gardeners, it began in childhood. My childhood was during the Second World War in England. I was evacuated from London, although happily I was with my mother and brother, I was not evacuated alone. And we ended up spending the war uh, on the estate of the Rothschilds, 40 miles northwest of London. So as a child, I had free reign of farmland and the immense landscape gardens of the Rothschilds estate, which were at that time overgrown and wild because the gardeners normally taking care of it, 70, seven, zero, had been reduced to three elderly men because all the other men were in the army or the RAF. So it was a fabulous for the children, anyway, Mm -hmm. a fabulous uh, nature, rambling, exploratory, safe environment in which to grow up. And I think that experience, when it was a time of great tension and anxiety for the adults and for children, a time of not quite understanding what was going on, but also anxiety, the Access to nature was a great solace and source of escape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. From these, what sound like kind of magical secret garden experiences of your early childhood, even though there was this sense of, of tension and anxiety and question and fear, um, it sounds like, especially from a child's point of view, it, it was very magical and kind of expanding for your own understanding of the world around you. Where, What did you go on to then study in your life that led to your current field of work, Claire? When I left high school, I went to university in London and took a degree in geography. 
uh, a degree which is not so common in the United States, unfortunately. Um, geography being a study of the landscape, the broader landscape of of its botany and geology and economy and everything to do with place. Yeah. Not just learning the capitals of the states, <laughs> which unfortunately is, tends to be what geography is in some elementary schools. So I took a degree in geography, ultimately came to the United States, ended up doing a master's degree in urban geography at the University of Nebraska, returned to Britain, ultimately came back to the States, to the University of California, Berkeley, did a second master's in city planning, and through a series of happenstance, I ended up staying and eventually became an academic with a position jointly between architecture and landscape architecture. What, what brought you to Berkeley? I worked as a urban planner and for a while as an academic teaching cartography and realized that in the end, geography in its academic sense was not for me. I wanted something more practical. I came to Berkeley and chose to do a degree in urban planning which was more like applied geography. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your first books were were much more oriented in this direction, the relationship of individuals and communities to their built, their hardscape built environment. Yes, my, my specialty within architecture and landscape was really affordable housing. That was one of my specialties, the site planning of affordable housing where people could find privacy, where they would find community, where children played. And since I was also teaching landscape architects who design everything outside of buildings, mm-hmm. I was teaching them, I hoped, how to think about the people who were using parks and playgrounds and office plazas in downtowns and the outdoor space in daycare, anything any outdoor space that landscape architects might uh, be called on to design. At the time, I was trying to link the social sciences and design. Mm -hmm. There was no name for what I taught. It was just a sort of thing I thought up, along with several other people across the country. Eventually, it became the subject that is now called environmental psychology. Mm -hmm. There are degrees in it and conferences and journals. I would not call myself a psychologist, but what I ended up teaching is self-taught environmental psychology. Mm -hmm. And yes, most of my work while employed as an academic was to do with housing and outdoor space. Which just seems like such a fascinating line of inquiry from your childhood experience of, of leaving a city of a large built environment and, and being transplanted into a, a completely different environment in a very interesting cultural moment in time. You move from there into what you are now very well known for, which is your your research and teaching and advocacy for landscapes 
that are healing or therapeutic in a broad variety of places and applications and what led you to moving in that direction, Claire? Well, actually, like so many turns in life, it was sort of a fortuitous event. A graduate student of mine named Marnie Barnes noticed an ad for a small research grant to look at the effects of the users of hospital gardens. And she said, you know, shall we go in for this? And neither of us had ever looked at hospitals or hospital gardens. And I said, "Mm, why not? Well, we got the grant, $10,000, not huge, but that was nice. And we scoped out four gardens in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we proceeded to interview people in all of them about their feelings about coming to having a garden, if their feelings change when they were there. We mapped where they used the garden, where, where their spaces that were busy, spaces that were not used. And this came, became a report which got an award. And then we were kind of on our way. We were very excited. Mm-hmm. We found no one had ever looked at hospital gardens before, yeah. to our amazement. There was no literature, which actually suited me fine. As Throughout my career, I've not been terribly interested in doing massive amounts of library research. I'd far, far rather be outside doing field research and observing people and places. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started. And then... A few years later, a a major New York publisher of architectural volumes, Wiley and Sons, figured out uh, quite uh, cleverly, I think, that maybe this healing gardens is going to be a new field, and they asked us to write a book. So in 1999, we published the first book on this subject that was just called Healing Gardens, Um, And it covered gardens for different kinds of patients, um, different kinds of settings from what we knew at that time. And this was this was kind of the beginning of the interest in this subject. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. As gardeners and outdoor advocates, I think we have a special understanding intuitively of how healing, calming, grounding, and centering our garden, open space, and trail time can be. And research is being done all the time around the globe to support and more specifically understand how and why this is true. We talked about this at length earlier this year when we spoke with Florence Williams, author of The Nature Fix. Today, we're speaking with Claire Cooper Marcus, retired professor of architecture and landscape architecture, about the evidence-based research into the therapeutic power of gardens in particular. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Claire Cooper Marcus, co-author of Healing Gardens as well as Therapeutic Landscapes. Her memoir, Iona Dreaming, The Healing Power of Place, was also published related to this topic in 2010. Welcome back. So that very first book, 
along these lines, the healing gardens, therapeutic benefits, and design recommendations, which you and Marnie Barnes co-authored. What were some of the characteristics of the patient populations and the design recommendations that you recall being really striking to you at that point? What were some of the surprises and sort of, yeah, important aspects? Well, I think when we started out, we didn't know very much, to tell you the truth. And uh, so it was a great um, experience of exploration that different patient groups would need subtly different garden designs. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, cancer patients on chemo, for example, need to stay out of the sun. So do people on certain other medications. So a garden of a cancer unit needs to have plenty of shade. I mean, this is not rocket science, but if you didn't know that, you could create a garden that didn't have enough shade and people wouldn't be able to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, even more uh, specific, I think, throughout this work has been gardens for people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia where they are losing spatial cognition, they can easily get lost, uh, they don't like to choose between turning left or right, so you need a continuous loop path, or people get can get agitated. In the late stages of the disease, they may put everything or anything in their mouth, so there must be no toxic plants, and a lot of common plants that we wouldn't realize, like azalea and daffodils and bleeding heart are actually toxic. I mean, you'd have to eat a lot, but to be, ca be cautious, mm -hmm. we recommend not including those. So we had to discover a lot of things like that, which I found actually very exciting and, and rewarding and trying to pull it all together. Our aim in that book and in a subsequent book was to really think about who we are writing this book for. And we were designing it for professional landscape architects who were the people hired to design gardens. And so we have to present the work in such a way that it was easy to use on the drawing board, mm -hmm. that we knew that many designers just don't have time or the inclination to read long academic reports. So this is not, it's more of a how-to book yeah. for designers. And I, uh, one of the things that I found very interesting between the two books, so the, the first book, um, which was called Healing Gardens and was published in the late 1990s, was then, over the course of your career, followed up with the one other one directly addressing institutions that work with patients, um, and that's a wide variety. So we're talking hospitals, nursing homes, hospice, care centers, those kinds of environments with their administration and planning departments and with landscape architects or designers who are helping them create these gardens. And then with the actual clients themselves, the, the patients and or their families. And there's been for between the two books and in my own conversations with you, there's some really fascinating um, evidence-based research conclusions over some best practices. 
talk a little bit about the the evolution of your work and thinking as you moved into the next book, which was which is entitled Therapeutic Landscapes: An Evidence Based Approach to Designing Healing Gardens and Restorative Outdoor Spaces. And this one you co-authored with Naomi Sachs, and it was published also by Wiley in 2013. Yes, so there was, you know, a gap of 14, 15 years between the books. And the reason we came out with a second book was a lot of gardens were created since the 90s. And some were excellent, some were not very good. (laughs) And we were concerned about that. Um, Some also research had appeared in those years, and we felt it was time to bring out a new Highly, luckily, Wiley allowed us to have a color plate or two on every single page of this book. We Mm -hmm. were thrilled because when you are writing for designers, it's not that they don't read, but they are very visual people. And so a book that is highly illustrated is very attractive to them. Um, I suppose one of the things that we emphasized in this second book is the importance of what's called participatory design, that the designer cannot assume they know what's best, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately happens among some designers, but that they must work particularly with the clinical staff of the unit or institution where they're designing. So let me just give you an example excellent designer in Portland, Oregon named Brian Bainson has done many gardens, I think 12 now for Legacy Health System in Portland which is absolutely you know, convinced that these are important. So every hospital in that system has a garden. He did one at a a, a unique garden at a burn unit, the Oregon Burn Unit in Mm -hmm. Portland, Oregon. He, since there was I think zero known in the literature about how to design a garden for burn patients recovering. He worked with the clinical staff of the burn unit to find out what it was, when would they allow people in the garden, what what did they require of the garden. In fact, it was like a cancer unit, lots and lots of shade. People um, recovering from burns or skin grafts have to keep out of the sun. Um, Lots of other things that came up in participatory design meetings with the staff, with the families, with former patients, and I think with current patients, And so together, he and Teresa Hazen, who is really the person who spearheaded these gardens in Portland, a horticultural therapist employed by Legacy Health Systems, together they have done participatory design for every one of their gardens. So this is something we emphasized in the book, that this is very important to work with the clinical staff to not assume you know what's best, but to work with the people who are treating those patients because every patient group needs a subtly different kind of garden. And what was so interesting to me, Claire, if you aren't looking at these specific needs, 
you could literally just get a pretty garden and it wouldn't serve anybody if it was located in the wrong place or had too much sun or had loud noises near it or had strong smells in it. And all of these subtle differences were so compelling and it really brought up the different fields that are involved in this from site planning to horticultural therapy to landscape design very specific to therapeutic purposes. Yes. I mean, so one of the, let's say, locational importances is for all users, visitors, patients, staff, the garden has to be easily accessible. So we, we one of our um, guidelines is that if possible, it should be viewed from the most busy part of the interior of the hospital or institution. So if it's a hospital, it should be viewable from the main foyer or the main waiting room. So you know it's there, even if right now you can't use it, but you could come back. Mm -hmm. Or if we're talking about senior housing or a dementia unit, it should be viewed from the day room or the dining room and easily accessible from those rooms by doors, especially in a unit for people with dementia who can forget, even if they were in the garden half an hour ago, they can forget it existed. Mm -hmm. So if it's always visible from places where they are frequently present inside the building, they will remember to go out there. So location is very, very important. If it's more distant, for example, there's more the very recent studies, so recent that I think we don't really have them adequately covered in our more recent book. Have they've been studies of the importance to nurses of these gardens. So it's not just patients, it's the nursing staff who are on their feet all day, who are often burned out, and they cannot use a garden that is distant. Do you know that the average lunch hour for nurses in this country is 38 minutes? If the garden is any distance from your workplace, you're not going to go there because you've got to walk there, sit and eat your lunch and walk back. So you end up having your lunch in a fluorescent lit windowless day room, which is not good for the mental health of nurses. Mm -hmm. So we are stressing that, that where possible, there be a staff-only garden right adjacent to the, the staff room or staff rooms, that there be several, so that uh, nursing staff in particular can get outside on their break, which is something they want. Surveys have shown they really, really want to do this, but if they don't have time, they're not going to go there. Right. And I would imagine it's true for every level of staffing at a hospital. And, and you think of family members who spend hours and hours in, in hospitals or at nursing homes with their, their loved ones, and they too can, can use a break uh, that is re-energizing. Definitely. So, yes, and in the case of hospice, for example, yeah. the people using a hospice garden may frequently be the families who are sitting at a bedside and had just need to take a break and get into an environment that is completely different from the interior of the building and just enable them to go outside and, and refresh before they come back. So, yes, for all users, patients, outpatients, inpatients, nursing staff, doctors, visitors, 
everybody, a garden can be helpful. Talk about some of the outcomes that facilities that incorporate good therapeutic gardens designed and located well, what kinds of outcomes are they seeing that leads them to believe this is absolutely worth their time and money? Well, that's a good question. And the outcomes, that is a a bit of a problem. It is virtually impossible to document, you know, empirical evidence to say that these patients being able to go out into these gardens uh, reduces their hospital stay by X days or X hours or reduces their stress level because there are so many what are called in research confounding variables. Can't You can't have one group of patients using the garden and one group told you may not use the garden. That's good. Actually, that has been tried and it just didn't work because the patients told they can't, they, they said, we want to use the garden. So you, it's, it's a very hard research to do. I want to go back in time to perhaps the trigger of this whole, whole movement, which was an article by a researcher named Roger Ulrich, who had access to medical records of people recovering from gallbladder surgery at a hospital somewhere on the East Coast. Half these these people were recovering from surgery. Uh, he made sure that they, he, they there was equal groups of by age and gender, et cetera, et cetera. And half were in rooms looking out at trees and half were looking out at a, a wall. This has been quoted, re-quoted many, many times. And what he found to everyone's kind of amazement was that the people looking out at the trees called for less painkillers, called the nurse less often, and left the hospital sooner. Now, as I said earlier, this isn't rocket science, and, and people might, might say, well, duh, of course, you know, we know looking at greenery is helpful. But no one had, until that point, provided evidence that the medical world took note of that was that was really strong empirical evidence um, to show that a view from a hospital room helped people heal sooner. We do know from experiments in the laboratory of people being stressed and then looking at pictures of nature or being st- somewhat stressed deliberately and then going for a walk in a natural environment or a walk on an urban environment is that stress levels reduce when people are looking at nature or when people are walking through a natural environment. So what I understand you to be saying and what I definitely gathered from both of these two books is that while there isn't a lot of direct data to correlate with specific outcomes. There is a lot of compelling information about the the therapeutic benefits to patients and family groups and medical institutions around the country that is borne out by a whole system like the one you see in Portland, making sure that these effective gardens are incorporated into their environments. And so I think we're relying a lot at this point on 
personal experience and anecdotal evidence that is pretty powerful. And I, that kind of brings me to your third book, which is very directly related to this subject, but is not an academic one, is a personal one. Would you be willing to talk about your book, Iona Dreaming, Claire? Yes. Well, I took early retirement in the mid-90s, and unfortunately, within three months of retiring, I had a diagnosis of cancer, breast cancer, and two years later, another cancer, colon cancer. And so suddenly, I was brought up short, and I was doing chemo and radiation and lots of other alternative things, and at the same time, ironically, doing the research with Marnie on hospital gardens in the Bay Area. And one of the gardens where we were doing research, which is Kaiser Permanente in Walnut Creek, was where I was receiving surgery and chemotherapy. <laughs> so I was both a researcher and a patient at the same time. So the importance of a garden in my case, before and after a chemo appointment became doubly a hundredfold more important and understandable to me since I was then a patient. Mm -hmm. um, subsequent to this medical experience, which I came through, thankfully, I realized that a lot of books I had read about cancer survivorship that nobody hardly mentioned place or gardens or the environment, which played an important part in my recovery, not only the garden at the hospital where I was, but my own garden here in Berkeley. And so I thought maybe there's something I can add to this literature. Mm -hmm. And um, along the way in the alternative work I did around healing, I worked with a, a hypnotherapist, regular therapist in Berkeley, who taught me how to do healing imagery. And she had asked me, where's the most healing place you can imagine being? And I named an island in Scotland named Iona, which is in the Hebrides off the West Coast, where I'd been many, many times. And for me, it was a magical place. And subsequent to that, every time I saw this therapist, I think once a week for a year, she had me imagine going to this place and laying down on the landscape and imagining healing happening to my body and the landscape of this island. Subsequent to this, I thought <clears throat> I would really like to write about this. Didn't quite know how. Through a fortuitous meeting, a woman offered me a free place to live on the island, and I moved there in, I guess it was 99, and lived there alone for almost a year. I mean, there were other people on the island. I lived alone, and at the time, I knew very few people there. And I spent my days walking the landscape and feeling, writing about my feelings about the landscape and the birds and the sea and the plant life, and also recalling the experience of doing healing imagery around the island. So, long answer to your question, 
this evolved into the book Iona Dreaming, The Healing Power of Place. And it turned out to be only a portion of the book is about my cancer recovery. It's more a story of living on the island and recalling other aspects of my life, my childhood, which I've mentioned, where the landscape and gardens were important and were a great solace to me. So this became a memoir um, quite different from any academic work I've done and probably to me the most pleasing thing I've ever written. Mm -hmm. It was difficult because it was quite personal, but I'm not, it's not, that's not that difficult for me now. After all, I come from Berkeley. <laughs> we all come from California. Let it all hang out. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Our guest today, Claire Cooper Marcus, has spent much of her professional and academic career researching, analyzing, and educating about the important relationships between human health and well-being and their physical environments, both inside and outside. But she doesn't know the value of this work through the objective lens of academia alone. From her experiences being evacuated from London during World War II to her living with cancer and finding personal healing in the land she chose for her recuperation, Claire has experienced the power of place personally. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place. Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Claire Cooper Marcus, one of the leaders in the world in the ever-evolving field of therapeutic landscapes and gardens. Welcome back. Leading on from there and, and sort of looking toward the future, I one of the elements of this work is the importance of transmitting these ideas and concepts and this evidence to the next generation of hospital administrators, of urban planners, and of landscape architects. I know that this is one of your goals. It's one of the things you are advocating for quite passionately in what you put your time towards every year, the education of the next generation of people who will move this work forward. Talk a little bit about the work you're doing at the Chicago Botanic Gardens. Yes, the Chicago Botanic Garden has a very active educational component. And I'm very happy that I think it was 12, 13, 14 years ago, not quite sure the start date, they began a once-a-year intensive course called Healthcare Garden Design Certificate Program. And in that course, which is held in May, a beautiful time in Chicago, particularly a beautiful time in this glorious botanic garden, one of the most beautiful I've ever been in in the world, um, about eight of us come together to teach and about 25 or so students come for an intense eight-day course on healthcare garden design. And the people who come as students, it's just such a joy to teach them because they are, for the most part, professional landscape architects, uh, occasionally a hospital administrator, and very occasionally a doctor, uh, we've had one or two, not that they say, I'm going to design gardens. I just believe in this so strongly. I want to know more about it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and they get a very intense, just over a week of lectures from us and field trips and work they do together. Um, it's just a joy for me to teach there because I feel passionate about this work. It's the only intense piece of teaching I do all year because I'm retired from Berkeley. And it's a joy because the students who come are very, very committed to going out and creating therapeutic landscapes. They paid rather a lot for this course mm -hmm. and they come from all over the country. And now we're getting students from all over the world. We've had some from Korea, Portugal, Sweden. A year or two ago, we had a man from Chile and a man from Ghana. So the word is spreading out into the world, which is very, very exciting for us. And the students are so, so avid for information that it's just a joy to teach them. It And it, it does sound so so hopeful. And the fact that the Chicago Botanic Gardens, which is sort of a uh, a little nexus of research being done in the area of therapeutic gardens and garden design, that they are hosting this every year is very optimistic to me. What, um, talk about, I, I believe that you also have some hopes about the possibility of getting publicly accepted criteria for evaluating therapeutic gardens in these kinds of institutions. So, uh, for instance, across the country, we have this independent and voluntary criteria for evaluating buildings and their sustainability called LEED. And so you and I have talked about the, the possibility of getting this same sort of voluntary criteria for evaluating the effectiveness of gardens across the country. What what do you what do you see as the importance of that, and what do you see as the hope of something like that taking place? Yes, we're we we discuss this every year at the Chicago course. In fact, I I pose this to the students: How can we do this? You know, who might administer it? Is it important? Everybody agrees it's important because, unfortunately, there is a little bit of a fad now about healing gardens. I mean, maybe that's a good sign that the term has become so commonly used in the hospital world that some hospitals are saying, we have a healing garden. And I look at pictures of it in some sort of trade magazine and I sigh because it maybe is a rooftop with a couple of chaise long and some potted plants and it's called a healing garden. Mm. And that does not fulfill our criteria for one. For, for one, a requirement of a good healing garden is it'll be about 70% green mm. and only 30% what we call hardscape and, and other criteria which I, I've talked about uh, earlier in this interview. So because it's becoming in some circles a little bit of a fad and institutions are saying we have one and what they have is not what we see as a healing garden. We have discussed among ourselves, is there some way of certifying these gardens? So far, we haven't come up with a solution. Um, yes, it would be something like LEED. It might have to be voluntary. Uh, it would be like the housekeeping seal of approval, mm -hmm. um, but who would administer it? Um, it's not 
quite clear. The American Society of Landscape Architects, maybe the Center for Health Design, maybe would the clients care? Would the designers care? I mean, another way of looking at it is that we get designers certified as healing garden designers, but mm-hmm. that would also be very, very difficult. So I'm, I'm sorry to answer this question in a sort of hazy non-answer because it's, it's a debate, let's say. It's yeah. a really important debate that's going on because we want to set some criteria and make sure that people labeling these things are doing so correctly and honestly. Yeah. And you can see where um, there have been a lot of gardens added, as you say, across the country, um, but there have also been some gardens lost because they they have not been deemed valuable enough. Um, describe for listeners the loss of the Prouty Garden in Boston. Oh, this is a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. The Prouty Garden was created in the, way back in the 1950s, donated by a woman who had lost two children in this hospital and and gave the garden and an endowment for its maintenance in perpetuity. It has a gorgeous dawn redwood in the middle. It has mature trees, a pond, and lawns, walking paths, all kinds of lovely things, hidden figures of animals in the in the shrubbery for children to find. It's been loved by patients, by families by staff for all these years and then a great fight emerged some years ago because the 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 children's hospital of boston said we need to expand this is the only place we can expand to there was a huge petition online more than eleven thousand people vote petitioned against this happening Uh, there was even a lawsuit to prevent it happening but in the end the hospital one, and hospitals have lawyers too, and they are very strong institutions. And let's face it, they are also in business. Mm-hmm. And they won the battle, and the garden has now been demolished. I mean, it's, it's a tragedy. Their answer is, we will replace it with as many square feet in the new building as we've lost in the Prouty Garden. But believe me, the number of square feet is divvied up in a little bit here and a little bit there and a balcony here and possibly a roof garden. Nothing is going to replace this beautiful garden that was demolished. So this is happening. And another garden at a rehab, rehab, beautiful garden for children with brain injuries in Manhattan. Again, the garden was demolished because there was nowhere else for the the hospital to expand. I mean, this is happening in dense urban areas. The places that need gardens the most, right? Yes, Ugh. exactly, exactly. Yes, they, I mean, but it's possible if a good designer can create a roof garden that is gorgeous and I just want to cite the most beautiful garden I think of all and it's a roof garden is St. Louis Children's Hospital it's on the eighth floor 
and it is absolutely stunning with mature trees, which is difficult to get on a roof garden, and four or five different water features and stepping stones and things for the, that will intrigue children like telescopes and a kaleidoscope. It's not a playground. We don't want a playground. We want a garden with lots of plant materials and lots of intriguing pathways and things that will engage children and adults and places for the staff to find peaceful place to rest on their break. So it, it can be done even on a roof. And I think the important thing in that the conversation is, well, we don't have an answer to how to certify them or, or, um, you know, certify designers or evaluate actual gardens yet. The, the first step to that is going to be raising awareness and making sure that those of us who value these things and understand that value fight hard for them and transmit that value onto as many people as we can, which is exactly what you're doing with your work, your personal work, and the way you spend your time, even in retirement. I'd like to end, Claire, with you giving us a description of your current garden in Berkeley and your current gardening practice in life. Okay. (laughs) Well, my garden is so important to me. It's my my oasis. It's my therapy. It's my place of exercise and so on. Um, So I have a front and a back garden. And I have to call them gardens. I'm sorry, even though I lived in this country for more than 40 years, I do not call them yards. God <laughs> I have to bless call them you. gardens, which yes. is what the English use. So in the front garden, I have a flower garden on one side, which gets the sun all day, and more of a shade garden on the other side, with my front path in between. In the back, which we chose this property because unlike many other properties on the block, there's no cottage at the back. So we have really quite a large back garden. It has a lot of fruit trees, which my um, former deceased husband planted many years ago. So we have apples, uh, plums, pears, persimmon. I have planted and am currently harvesting masses of raspberries. The blackberries are just over. So I like a garden which provides food, which this does. Um, I'm also harvesting right now green beans and masses of tomatoes. I've recently planted uh, my winter vegetables, which here in Berkeley we can grow chard, kale, and collard greens all winter, and I do that every winter. It's also a flower garden, and this year I have my flowers and my winter vegetables mixed up together. Uh, because this earlier this year, I had this back garden, what I call age-proofed. I'm now over 80, and I have to be cautious in walking and balance. And I had pathways which were stepping stones, which were beginning to be hazardous. So I had the pathways changed to, I didn't like having concrete put in, but there are concrete pathways which I had tinted and if any of your listeners are thinking of having their garden age-proofed, always remember you must have concrete tinted because the reflection from regular concrete is causes glare, which is very hard on aging eyes. So I had tinted concrete with leaf imprints 
and that idea of my daughter and they look beautiful leaves from my garden which were imprinted into the concrete as it dried and four raised beds so that I don't have to bend to tend my vegetables and flowers and pick my tomatoes and so on. And I have a greenhouse where I propagate things from seed, the green beans I actually had to order from a nursery in Ireland because I couldn't find them here. They're called Fasold, F-A-S-O-L-D. They produce fabulous, long, thin, stringless green beans, and I've been picking them now for July, August, more than two months. Um, so that's my garden. <laughs> it's a vegetable. It's a flowers. It's fruit. It's productive. It produces things I can eat and flowers I can pick. So it's vitamins for the body and the soul. Yes, indeed. I would say for anyone listening who is, for example, looking for a facility for aging parents, or you are yourselves looking for a facility, make sure this facility has a garden and that it's easily accessible and it's accessible for people whose balance is maybe being a little compromised and it's beautiful and it's predominantly green and it's well cared for. Because for someone in a facility, this is such a boon to have. And it may be something that people looking for such a place for elderly parents might not immediately see as important or as important as the design of the building and the quality of the meals, but make sure it has a garden. Thank you very much for being a guest today. It's been an honor to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. Claire Cooper Marcus is a retired professor in architecture and landscape architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. She has co-authored and edited Healing Gardens, Therapeutic Benefits and Design Recommendations with Marnie Barnes, as well as Therapeutic Landscapes, an Evidence-Based Approach to Designing Healing Gardens and Restorative Outdoor Spaces with Naomi Sachs, published in 2013. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivating Place and value these conversations, subscribe to the program on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud and give it a rating and a review at those places. Or, most meaningfully, share it with other people who value this level of conversation about these things we love and which connect us. Together, we make a difference. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.